Hello and welcome back to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. It's episode 34 and it's the penultimate episode of season one of the podcast and today I've got something really special for you all. As some of you may remember, my second episode of the podcast was all about the Barbican, the incredible, brutalist social housing estate in London which people either love or love to hate. If you've listened to the episode, you know that I love all things Barbican and what it stands for. So I was beyond delighted when the brilliant Gabby and Howard, who live in the Barbican, got in touch to suggest an episode offering an insider's view of living there. Which I absolutely jumped at, and this is what this episode is about. Gabby and Howard offer a unique inside look into this architectural experiment, the changing perceptions of the Barbican throughout their history of living there, and how this amazing building has kick-started Grayscape, their online site which celebrates and discusses all things brutalist architecture and the amazing concrete community that this has formed over the last four years. This is a really special episode and conversation where Gabby and Howard talk openly about their ever-evolving opinion and interactions about the Barbican and how the city and its opinion of the estate has evolved why brutalist architecture gets a bad name and suggests why it's really important to look again at these buildings and what they tell us about the time periods they were built in. Thank you so much to Gabby and Howard. This was an utter privilege to speak to you both and I really hope you enjoy it. It's a very special episode. Enjoy. Um, so I think my first question really is, can you remember the first time you heard of the idea of the Barbican? Well, you're ahead of me on that, aren't you? Yeah, so when I was um, 15 or 16, I had a summer job as a messenger for a stockbroker's firm in Bread Street, just off um, uh, Cheapside. And literally in those days, it was before electronic payments and the internet, obviously. We're talking in the early 70s then. And um, my job was to take things around, usually at, at uh, double time. You know, everything was a sprint. Um, and I remember getting sent to deliver something to an address in the Barbican. And I had never been to the Barbican. I walked past London Wall and suddenly in this new world. And I come to a vast building site because it was still a building site then. And um, I look over, find the address, it's a trench in the ground. I'm looking down, I'm on the level of Aldersgate, so I'm looking down, and there are houses there. And it, one of the, um, the address I had to deliver this envelope to was in that trench. Scroll forward to 1994, I move into a house in that trench. Amazing. I mean, just, when Gabby said we were looking for somewhere to move, we were in a very, a uh, small place in uh, Wapping and we need, with, with two young children, we needed to move. And she said, oh, I, found, I found this house and uh, it's in the Barbican. I couldn't believe it when I came here and saw it was... Fully formed. Fully formed, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. So, so I, I had not thought about the Barbican much from age 16 to 36, but um, there it was, it was waiting for us. I think there's, that actually brings up something quite interesting because when people talk about districts where they're going to live, I'm like, you know, am I going to stay in town? 
am I going to aspire to go out to the sort of the, the country? The, the country. Um, curiously, Barbican rarely came into conversation. Mm. It was deemed as something that was disliked, quite odd and misunderstood, and wasn't even in, in people's conversations. Mm. We, had a, we had a friend when I was a student who lived here, and we used to like coming to her flat, which was an Andrew's house. Mm -hmm. And then we always wanted, because I worked as a lawyer in the city, um, I wanted a short journey time with young children. Mm. And moving here meant that I could even come home and if necessary, go back to work because it wasn't a remote working then, um, because I had a, just a short walk. So that was one of the principal attractions. It wasn't because there was a whole social life because the city was dead oh, really? in the evenings and weekends. And uh, it's only in recent years that the axis of London's cool has moved from the west to the east, out towards uh, Clark and Whirl yeah. and Hoxton and Hackney. Well, we were living in Wapping. Mm. So yeah. we really did sort of, we were very close to where all the creative activity was until Wapping sort of outpriced yeah, all really. of us. But, um, but it really was, I mean, you're right. It's, it was a shift, it was a tilt. It's incredible, really. And Ken, Howard, what you were saying there about the idea of having the short commute, because essentially that was really, why they had built the Barbican. It was after, you know, it was this, like you said, it was this 40 acre piece of land that had been bombed out during the war. And it was the city of London trying to figure out what to do with it. And they decided to build the Barbican as this utopian offering for people to live and work within mm -hmm. the city. Oh yeah, it was but, incredibly creative of them. But it was also a, a cynical move yeah. involved, which was really about placing an MP in yeah, the yeah. area. The city of London had been increasingly depopulated since the 19th century because of all the financial institutions moving in and they wanted to make sure there was a resident population so that they were retained a member of parliament. I mean it's still only less than 10,000 people yeah. living in the city and uh, you know the funny thing is that the Corporation of London endorsed the building the Barbican they must have invested a lot of money in doing so and then spent the next 50 years being embarrassed about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't, you know, it was it's the great discussion about Buddhist architecture. I think deeply didn't understand it. Mm. They didn't want it. Yeah, and, and if you looked at the art centre, it continuously sought to redecorate and reinvent itself so that no one would notice <laughs> that it was, you know, built in this particular style and sits in the middle of this, uh, a very modernist, brutalist estate. But they've got over that now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they love it now. Well, that's it. And it kind of had this, because um, there was a lot of stick attached to it. Because I remember, Gabby, you and I have, have spoken previously. And then, and you said when you guys moved in to begin with, and you would tell people, oh, we live in the Barbican, they would be like, why on earth? Oh, yeah, it was like a whole speech. It was a speech that was deep inside them that I don't even think they even knew existed. Well, people would just say, oh, how can you live there? I mean, which you would never do. It's so impolite to say to somebody <laughs> about their home, oh, how can you live there? And the, and the cute thing is that, that, that part of this whole, did you call it a diatribe? Yeah. <laughs> is that, is that, reasonable? Is that reasonable? But part of the diatribe involved how can you live in the middle of all the concrete? And of course, for those of us living here and 
particularly in our case where we look out onto a garden, our experience is very informed by green, change of season, change of weather, change of light. And peace and quiet. And peace and quiet, yeah. 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 It's not a noisy place. Well, that's it, because the whole sort of thing about the Barbican is that there's no through roads for cars. Everything's very much underground. And, and does that really help you feel like you're not in the city centre, even though you are? Well, it's, it's, mm, in a way, the answer, there's a complication in the answer because underground or below ground, you know, sort of subterranean life where we are here. But if you're living in one of the, the tower blocks and the high rises, you're absolutely informed with every view that you are in the middle mm. of one of the greatest cities in the world. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but you're, you're inside. And one of the great things about the design, and I think it was absolutely deliberate, is to create this inside-outside sense. Mm. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's not an accident that it's so very difficult for visitors to navigate. And that place is much more accessible when you're a resident because you can go on the internal paths and you have a key that opens gates. Um, that's deliberate to create this sense of being inside um, and visitors are extremely welcome, but they stay to the bits outside and they're scratching their heads how to find anything. Yes, because one of the, you know, sort of one of the sort of love views is of the waterfall, but they yeah. can't get to it. Oh, this is one of the images that you that you sent me is this incredible yeah. waterfall into this is this a communal is this the pond that's that's beside that's right. the um the sort of the theater that backs onto it is this this one so it's there, there, there's the lake is divided in two there's the lake in front of the um the art center the terrace of the art center and then it continues beyond the high walk that leads into the art center and that part is all only accessible uh, if you're a resident. So um, people on the high walk or on the terrace can see all that, but they can't get there. Um, and, and, and also, I think, well, did we send a picture of um, Frobisher Court? I think that people can, people, they maybe people can't visit, get there at the moment. Yeah, no, at the moment, Frobisher Court, this wonderful crescent, mm. sent you a photograph when it was draped. Um, so they, 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 summer before last, they ran a series of um, outdoor movies there um, in summer, in Frobisher Crescent. And um, that one was, it was dressed for um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So it was great, you sat outside and you watched this fantastic Stanley Kubrick movie and they had these sheets of fabric. Uh, from the first stories of the, um, the Frobisher Crescent building down to the ground and uh, they were very dramatically lit. Because it's not normally lit. No, no, But, but uh, just to, to clarify, at the moment, um, I believe it's still locked. Mm. You can't get there unless, unless you're, you're resident. resident. Yeah. And that's all part of kind of the lockdown to do with COVID. Oh, so there's this sense of a community and, and really sort of using the spaces. When you moved there, for example, you know, you said you had, you had two young children. You know, you have the school there, you have the, the art centre, the gardens. Did you race? I mean, did your kids go to the schools that were there or did they go elsewhere? Or? No, they didn't, they didn't go to the City of London Girls' School, but they did grow up in the garden. Mm. I mean, they, 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 they were six and four when we moved here. And there's a playground with you know, where you can play football and their goals and the baseball hoop and a basketball hoop rather. And there, there used to be a tennis 
tennis net and uh, and then there were the swings and all the other stuff and the great thing is that you could let them go out on their own mm. and run around this very very large garden and ride their bikes around it so yeah we embraced that we, we I just want to speak about the school at the moment because it's quite interesting because the school one would think that it would be the local high school mm. Mm. But it isn't. It's London's local high school, well, and it's well. It's highly competitive to get in there, and my and my understanding is it isn't necessarily to do with whether whether or not you're a resident. I don't think that gives you sort of brownie points. In the case of it would have been our daughter, because it's a girls' school. She absolutely said, "No way am I going to school at the end of the garden." It was like <laughs> that is too near. And, um, and there's been, there's been a, a, she went to <laughs> so there's been a good deal of tension with the with the girls' school in re recent couple of years because over the years from its original placement it's expanded it put on at least I think perhaps two upper stories and has expanded on on, on its footprint oh, wow. and then it came up with a plan about three years ago that it wanted to build a a, a primary school in a car park. I mean, underground, exactly. Your expression says it all. I mean, that was just a nutty idea to turn these you know, children into moles. Then it came new, up- new headmistress or master now, <laughs> let me just add. Then it came up with a much more concerning plan. I mean, one that had, that was realistically been argued for. And that would have meant that um, on the Western side of the school, uh, bit that faces the church, there is an open area where there are these huge Pilotti columns and there's really lovely staircase down, but it's open area. They wanted to enclose that and turn it into a cafeteria. And- um, For the students. For the students. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there was a, a concerted campaign to stop it because it was offensive. A SOS Barbican. Yeah, offensive to, 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 to the design. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, this is grade two listed. Well, this was my next um, question. Yeah, because I, I would have assumed because it's listed, you, you can't change the infrastructure or, or the- Well, outcome. there's levels of listing. I think you go next to grade two start and that, that gets more complicated. And I was involved in the past with a grade one listed building. That's where you're really under territory. It is very difficult to change everything. My understanding, and I'd love somebody to let me know if that's accurate, is that the Barbican had the opportunity to get the star, the grade two star, and didn't want it. No. Um, but if we think historically, what is it about the city of London, this area? It has constantly changed through time. Um, we think much more deeply about conservation than any previous generations and we see it as offensive this idea that just because there's a gap you can put something in it it's it's you know it's misunderstanding the nature of the whole the whole estates um but i don't know where we will land in the sense there have been changes before mm. so it's a, they weren't sort of going into uncharted territory but I think it will be interesting because the city is potentially about to have a very big change because of come of lockdown, mm. how our working lives has changed. So. 
Yes, the corporation um, needs to make sure it has a lot of responsibilities and it will want to make sure that uh, lost revenue is made up. If you look at what the city did in response to um, the construction of Canary Wharf, mm. uh, it was low rise and high rise buildings were not allowed in the square mile. And the corporation's planning body dropped those rules like a hot potato. Yeah, one night. In response to um, Canary Wolf. And so while some of the views of St Paul's are preserved, there's a whole mishmash of buildings and a lot of people would say that they don't reflect well on cohesive design and story to the city. Others would say they show that it's energy and entrepreneurialism, etc, etc. But for us living in the Barbican, uh, I think that the, the the Corporation London will look at um, these large unused car parks. We know they already have. I mean, people don't keep cars the way they did. So there's a lot of spaces in the car park and figure out what can we do to make more money out of this place. That's not illegitimate. Mm, but, yeah, um, it's so interesting. But like you said, I mean, you've lived in the Barbican since 1994. You must have seen so much change in and around maybe maybe not so much the estate but you're very close to like the big financial districts the markets there has that brought a change of people sort of in and out of the barbican have you seen it change from maybe like very student-based to family to a range of so people? i i think that when we moved in there were a lot of retired people living here oh, okay a lot of people there were people who had bought pieda tears you know somewhere to stay in the week before they went off to the country at the weekend. <laughs> there are far fewer of those now. I mean, people say to us, oh, you live in Barbican. Where do you live in the weekend? Isn't that in the Barbican? Barbican. Yeah, they were, they, were thrown, they were thrown by that. Do you have things to do at the weekend? It was like a quite strange... And of course, we've been, we're so lucky now because if you like theatre and movies, we can get to restaurants, um, uh, interesting restaurants and uh, retail is all is all east this is where the creativity is now and we're so well placed for that a bus ride or a short cab ride and we're there and um, but also going back to your your core question um there were arguably waves i think we were part of a new type of person coming back into central districts of london um and sort of in parallel it was happening in Hackney, it was happening in Stoke Newington. Yeah. So these are places where everybody has sort of moved out over the 1970s, I think, probably yeah. before our, way, way before our time. So our, our generation, you know, the bourgeois, the bourgeois imperative <laughs> of the generation was, if you did well, you'd have a nice house in a suburb. Yeah, that was kind of like where one wanted to be. And but it, it did, it turned, it turned on its head, yeah. but not just in London. Right. This was happening worldwide. And part of that we saw in Wapping because people suddenly wanted to be near the river. Mm. The idea of living by the river was suddenly something really aspirational. Um, so we saw the ways we were a type, let's say. So we, saw, we met lots of other families coming in at the same time, many of who have remained, actually. Mm. Um, and then um, that sort of tootled on for a while. And I would say sometime after 2000, we started to see more cre people worked in creative industries. 
coming in. Um, we also had the benefit because we lived out the UK for a few years, oh. so, but we were coming back and forth. So to, to our home, so so we could maybe you see the differences much more with much more clarity when you could, you have that those sort of gaps of time, mm -hmm. um, but certainly after twenty fifteen, I'm going to say mm -hmm. it was really clear at the weekend you'd have lots of people coming with cameras, just and that real understanding of brutalism really kicked in yeah. and people. The, there was a real you know, sort of a drop in the age of people coming who would just go and hang out outside the arts centre. Um, and that was really exciting. And I also think that, you know, that's infectious, that sort of stuff, because you could see the exhibitions were much more reflective of the tastes of the people who were coming. Yeah. So it was an all round win. Yeah, yes, you're so right. That's so interesting because the first time I came across the Barbican, funnily enough, Howard, a little bit kind of like yourself, I was delivering something to the Barbican. Um, so in my day job, I work for an art gallery and I was delivering to a client that lives in the Barbican. And of course, um, there's that sort of the security guard before you go down into sort of this sort of underground car park. And when the taxi driver essentially was like, right, this is as far as I can take you. And I spoke to the security guard and I was like, what? is this build that it was like because I come from a small mining town just outside of Glasgow and I've just never seen anything like it and like you said with the whole signage then I had to find this flat it took me maybe about 25 minutes to find where I had to go and every time I go to the Barbican and I spoke to someone about the Barbican um, which is actually how we we started talking on my second episode in the podcast and we were sort of like who was in charge of the signage within the Barbican? They must have had some laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've just tiptoed right into a huge topic at the moment here about signage because all these signs are popping up everywhere. Yeah. Um, new signs and um, there's a whole kind of crowd of people who don't like the new signs. Oh, there's no signage. Yeah, there's, yeah, but I think it's... Uh, I haven't particularly come across it yet, but certainly there's, there's a lot of chatter going on about it. But that's wonderful because that's indicative of the village aspect. You would get that. Coming from a village, I didn't come from a village. I came from East London, so did Gabby. So there wasn't that village atmosphere. And of course, villages are lovely and they're horrible. They're mm. lovely because everybody knows your business. They're horrible because everybody knows your business. <laughs> And that's, that's, you know, part of the vibe of the Barbican. Um, I remember once we, we, we had a note from the Barbican Horticultural Society criticising, we have a flat terrace roof with, a, you know, planters and tables Lovely. and chairs, mm -hmm. criticising, criticising us and, and, and our presentation. And we're not even members of the Barbican Horticultural Society. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> That, that has then sparked a question then is there is there certain rules of things that you are and are not allowed to do with the you know the exterior of even your private balcony spaces because of course the Barbican has these incredible three big towers and what makes the Barbican so unique is they all have planters and they all have these very different sorts of plants that cascade down and I just I've never thought of is there a list of things that you can and cannot have and things that you, you can change and sort of make tweaks to sort of make it your own? Plants, I think they're, they're, they're fine with. Yeah. No pets. No pets? No pets. Anywhere? 
anywhere. Well, no I'm sure there probably are some. There are secret house cats, yeah. I yeah. know. Um, but dogs aren't allowed for sure. So no pets. I, I imagine you, someone would pick you up if you were, if you had a fish tank. Um, <laughs> Thought police. No, but um, our front doors are painted the same colour. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's quite so the, the listing means we can't change the exterior. And people don't, now people don't want to exterior. Apparently, change the exterior. After this block we live in was first occupied, one of the um, uh, house owners sought planning permission to put an extra story on because it's a flat roof. Mm. And um, uh, that was stopped. But I mean, it's unthinkable now. It wouldn't happen. You couldn't do it now. But we, when we bought the house, the previous owner had divided. So the central core is divided by two wings that are higher. Um, like have an a, extra like story. An kind of yeah, idea. have an extra story. And the one which is the, the, the bedroom wing, the previous owner put a mezzanine in and put an extra floor in. Perfect for two children to have a room um, and uh, an upstairs, downstairs. And he'd never sought the consent of the Corporation of London. So when we moved in, they were very, very keen to come and visit and have a look at it. They weren't going to stop us keeping it. But, you know, it was a nice construction. But um, um, Yeah, they were positively excited when we invited them. <laughs> Inviting, you know, the kind of the, um, the estate office in and said, look, you know, we aware that you were interested to see what happens here. And now there is everything, everything for the interior was designed for the Barbican. Yeah. So the kitchens were 50 years ago were absolutely the forefront cutting edge of what was chic and modern. And they were all built to imperial measures. So when it comes to replacing anything, you can't get the same size anymore because it's metric. And they wore out, but there are people who are passionate about um, uh, recreating something exactly as it was. And so the original light fittings of which we have some, um, the light switches, the bathroom, there's what is known as the Barbican sink, a very compact sink, which, uh, um, so things like that people are, are, are searching for. And there's a, there's a salvage mm. operation so that people can donate bits and pieces that can be then uh, restored and. Then, Put into other homes. There's also some really interesting sort of locking devices on the doors. Mm. Oh wow! So yeah, it's I mean, it is. And the garshi. Oh gosh, the garshi. Come across the garshi. No, what about about the garshi? So <laughs> great work. It's a waste disposal system. It sits in your sink. We don't have it anymore because it just died for us. But um, we used it for years. It sits in the sink. You fill it up with with waste. Pretty much anything. Fill up drive out all the air with water and then you just lifted it up and suction sucked it out and it would go down into there are like seven miles of tunnels under the Barbican Wow! and uh, the waste is taken down into these tunnels I think it's compacted and then it's transported and put on barges on the River Thames and taken off to landfill I presume um, when you know the garshi they wanted to um they didn't know what to do with because it seemed to be coming to the end of its useful life and the company that originally made it had gone out of business years ago 
but they found that there's an apartment block in Moscow mm. which has the same system. So it's keeping going for a bit longer. <laughs> so some people definitely still have still have it. Oh, I yeah. kind of, I sort of, I, I mostly loved it, and occasionally when, well, it, when got it went blocked, wrong, <laughs> get your arm down. Oh, no. <laughs> so no glass went down. But it was. I mean, it just speaks to the vision. This vision of this whole environment where everything was thought about plus the design which meant you were bound to bump into your neighbors when you went on your walks and things i mean it's all part of this whole it's um it's a design for living so mm -hmm. modern apartment blocks modern complexes you go to chelsea harbour you have a gymnasium you know we lived in an apartment block in new york and it had a cinema and a residence lounge and a gymnasium the Barbican has an arts centre and it has a conservatory. It doesn't have a gym. The um, Golden Lane estate, uh, just north of us, which was the original um, Chamberlain, Powell and Bond development, has a wonderful community centre with a very lovely swimming pool. They chose not to do that in the Barbican. I don't think we've lost anything by it. I think we have um, the, the leisure aspect, the, Ability to relax is really within the design and of course the, the apartments are a good size you know, everything that went wrong with the great brutalist public developments that became sink estates and heavily criticized it wasn't brutalism that was wrong it was not enough money was spent to develop them and maintain them Mm. And uh, the bar yeah, it's, shows it's, what it's, can be done. It's a really, uh, you know, people sometimes talk to us about this, and I always find it an incredibly unfair uh, comparison. Because if you, if something is built, however well it's built, and however well proportioned the rooms are, if somebody doesn't care to light it properly, and people don't feel safe, mm. and things are broke, you know, just broken up with repair, so I'm repeating myself, well, of course, there's no comparison. You know, there's there's sort of service charges here they're not small <laughs> service no, charges breathtaking <laughs> um yeah um but it does mean that the quality of life is just it's incredibly impacted mm. so i have to argue that you know robin hood gardens and the like had it been uh dealt with differently from the beginning could have been incredibly successful yeah, and like you said, it's kind of, it really, for me, when I have read about the Barbican or spoke about the Barbican, it really does sort of, I don't know, speak of the art of living because the designers and the architects, they they thought about every little detail. Mm -hmm. And it was so innovative, like you said, you know, everything was made to measure, very sleek. I remember reading this thing about, you know, it had underfloor heating. The flat oh, yes. soundproofed, everyone was very pleased with that, something they haven't continued in London design since probably the Barbican, because no flat I've lived in in London has ever been soundproof. But it's, yeah, it, it was, it's this amazing piece of history. And I mean, how does it feel to live in something that holds such an importance? Well, my feeling is that it, uh, I thought it was lovely. I like living here. And as it gradually became more popular, mm. um, I realized what a privilege it was. Mm. Um, it's, not, it's not cheap to buy a place in the Barbican. Interestingly, it was always 
cheaper than other places that were considered uh, suitable for aspiring middle class people. Yeah, I think that's really true. It lagged behind on price for a long time, not now, but it, 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 def it definitely did. Yeah, I think it's um, obviously we're very interested in architecture and design and the impact on, on, on people. And I agree with you, I think it's, it's a privilege and there are no positives attached to lockdown, okay? But if there was a positive, um, it's being able to truly experience the Barbican, mm. where it becomes your, you know, certainly becomes your world. Yeah, yeah. You know, the it fact does. that you have gardens and water, mm. and found, well, not fountains always, <laughs> working or not, but, but waterfalls. I mean, and it's all seconds away. Yeah. That's incredible. It is. It is. And now we have a granddaughter. Oh, so she loves the fact that you come out the front door and uh, 25 metres away is a playground. Um, so again, <laughs> it speaks to the de design, yeah. this sort of this aspect of sort of really thinking about what, what people want and what people need. Yeah. And of course, it's not just so the, the sort of site opens in the 80s, but it's not this sort of new sort of phenomenon, if you will, it's, it's completely entrenched with history within London as well. And I think people forget that. So do you maybe want to tell us about some of the important things that are within the Barbican or even things that have... I, I just wanted to say something that it, it was it, it, in parallel, there was, you know, the Corbusier was building Lunite Tapitation, and anyone who sees French is going to really like cringe at that, that accent. But there were other estates. This was happening elsewhere, yeah. this idea of people sort of living together in a group. But, 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 but again, going back to your question, so, well, I think about the Roman Wars. Well, to me, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by history. Um, the fact that when I walk to the post office, I walk um, along Wallside um, by the church and the Roman wall is there. Mm. Uh, Roman and then it's the medieval wall and it continues past the crippled gate where there was a huge battle in the, uh, between the Saxons and the Vikings, I believe, and, uh, and all along the London wall. Yeah. It's great history. And it's not just that, it's the history of the city. It's the history, you see, if you ever watched the original movie, The Italian Job with Michael Caine, there's a point when he's riding in a milk flow early in the morning um, along London Wall in what must have been the 1960s. And uh, uh, that was it. <laughs> and uh, not many people know. <laughs> and, anyway, so it's steeped in history. It is lovely. Um, uh, it's not just the, the ancient history of, of Roman times, the Guild Hall and uh, development of the city as, a, as an economic centre, but then, then around it, you know, Smithfield, mm. where martyrs were burned at the stake and... Uh, um, Wallace. Yes, Wallace. Must be a hero of yours. Yeah. He, came, he came to a must, most unpleasant end just around the corner. Yeah. Outside Bart's Hospital. So it, you do feel you're living in a place where um, the ghosts are lining up behind you. Thousands of people have lived here through all sorts of different lives. And I think they've integrated the Barbican design, which 
obviously Barbican in the name, it has that castle element, parts of it like a, a walls and the, with arrow loops in them, it's um, it, and crenellations it speaks to. So it still has that sense of being connected to its history. Um, it's important. I think that's important, that anchors us. Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate in that respect. Yeah. Very mm. fortunate. Yeah, walk to St Paul's, you know, the famous picture of St Paul's rising through the smoke during the Blitz. Um, yeah, maybe it was the bad, bad aim of the bombers, which create, ultimately created the fire. The barbecue, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that one of the things they kept aiming for St Paul's? A mist. A mist. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't, I mean, they did actually, can't, they did actually bomb it. Yeah, because is there not? Um, there's a plaque in the Barbican where the first bomb fell on the city of London, or supposedly the, the first. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes, sense all that. There's um, there's a wonderful clip. We put it on our website of uh, a pop group who had some uh, success in the 1960s called Unit Four Plus Two. Uh, performing their hit song, which I can't remember the name. Concrete and clay. Concrete and clay. <laughs> On the building site of the Barbican. And what's great is, you know, it wouldn't be like a, you know, when, when, when Stormzy came here to record one of his videos, uh, you know, everything stops for him. When Concrete and Clay was recorded here, the blokes working on the building site, no hard hats in sight. <laughs> <laughs> I just carry on working and some mixers go. It, and so these are glimpses of a different, there's a, if you go to the London archives, there's a Pathé movie about people who moved in here in, in the, when it first opened, so 51 years ago. And they have some housewives, as they describe them. <laughs> so women with scarves on done up tight under their chins, and they're complaining that there isn't a laundrette on site. Oh, okay. How interesting. There is now, it has been for some so years. So we have a friend who's a photographer, um, uh, David Hoffman, and he came and photographed the Barbican in 1975, and we have, we have a little zine about it. Um, and it's really wonderful because I walked around with him, was it last year, um, maybe, maybe it was 18 months ago, and he kind of retook photographs where those original ones were taken. And uh, there's so many, so many things, you know, cars that are parked with, they definitely can't be parked now, a kind of cafeteria that doesn't exist. So everything is yes, evolving, yeah. it's evolving. It is, it is. But certainly the, uh, there's quite a lot of sort of literature around about who the Corporation London were targeting to become, you know, the house, flat and house owners here. And it's really interesting what they were looking at, aspiring young professionals. Those be tenants. Because, you know, what, one of the things that dramatically changed the Barbican was, uh, was uh, Margaret Thatcher's right to buy. Because it was mainly tenanted and a certain number of those had to be uh, social housing tenants, council tenants. Um, uh, corporation was never crazy about that, obviously. But I don't think it was ever crazy about the right to buy. No. Because, I mean, it's a long leaseholder and it provides our services. And, you know, by and large, it's a pretty good landlord. Um, but uh, the, the, um, the right to buy changed, changed the character of the place, I'm sure. And, and also, that decision had an incredibly long reach. 
which has left us in the position we are now as, as, uh, as a country with just a desperate shortage of social housing yeah. for people who genuinely need it. built anything. Mm. Well, not enough. Nowhere not near enough. enough. Not, no, nowhere near enough. Well, that's it, or that they're getting sort of torn down, and you know, it's you know that they're not replenished these sites with social housing. Therefore, particularly in London as well, it's you know it's going to these big high-rise flats where you know you're paying extortionate rates for a tiny cramped two-bed apartment that's you know, close to a million. Well, and then, yeah. There's a whole debate, isn't it, about allowing allowing buildings to fill into such a state of disrepair that the only solution a particular council might have would be to sell it to a developer who then, as part of the deal to develop it, only allows so many of the social housing residents to return and the rest are sold this is, off. This is what's happened at Balfront Town. Mm. You know, Balfront Town, Goldfingers, brutalist development down in uh, Poplar, Mm. Um, was in a state of, of, of decay and a lot of work needs to be done to bring it up to standard in terms of the utilities and the electrical wiring and the only way they can afford to do it is for the um, for flats to be sold on long leases and um, that changes the purpose of the uh, building which was to the house the, the, vision, the vision yeah. of the architect we have, we have serious issues there. Uh, I have to ask you, obviously, because you've, you've lived in the Barbican for such a long time. Do you think, and of course, you, you run this company called Grayscape. Is it from living in the Barbican that sparked this love and want to explore these incredible, brutalist creations, not just in the UK, but all over the world? Yeah. It was. Yes, oh, definitely, def definitely, definitely, the spring board was living here. And 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 sort of seeing how others who came and visited would photograph it and sort of think gosh there's there's more there's a lot more to this what about this angle or that angle um, it it was about the space um and the vision as much as as the of the quality of photograph is about the, the photographer's experience <laughs> so so that yeah it was born out of that but very quickly as you say you then get to to a place to think wow okay so what were champion pound one thinking of ah were they looking at what kabusia was doing were they looking at what was happening at that point would been in the soviet union uh, and constructivism and and yes it's like yeses they they, they were looking and so we, we, we see these architectural tours coming past several times a day at the weekend on the high wall, which is by, we'll look into our, our, our kitchen. And Gabby said, let, let, let's put some photographs on Instagram. I think original. So, so Grayscape, why Grayscape? It, we, it actually didn't start off, it truly evolved. It was, um, it was just an Instagram, uh, but then we found we were talking to people all over the world and they were talking back to us and say and it just became a more it's like a community because the whole thing grew organically and it's really fascinating we have somebody in vancouver except talking about buildings in, you know where they're living and then somebody is living in the urals in the middle of katarimberg or your katarimberg yeah in the middle of us just saying i've got a building i've got a building i, I think you want to see this yeah. building yeah. and the funny thing is that you know we're always reading about the, the, how, how ghastly 
social media can be, how really vile to people it can be. Now, our experience of that in four years, four or five years mm. now, four years, uh, on, on our Instagrams is zero. Yeah. I mean, one every so often someone will... I, I hate it, it's an ugly building. Yeah. But then everybody else will engage with them and actually talk about polite. why it's... Yeah, it's very... It's, and it's the same with our Twitter as well. It's actually very, very polite. The people who are vile to each other are the ones who post pictures of little pink pussycats. And cupcakes. And cupcakes. Mm. Avoid the cupcake Instagrams, I think. <laughs> no, I'm talking to the, to the cupcake so, crowd. But, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, so Gradescape, why did we get to that when we were at Barbican? Because we suddenly realised that we're actually, we're not just talking about the Barbican anymore. It had evolved. But what are we talking about? And it's a grey landscape. So, <laughs> Gradescape. Well, yes. I mean, that was, that was, I mean. That's it, it kind of simp simplifies it, but truly that is probably If you spoke it. to Chamberlain Powell Bon back in the day and said, uh, talked about brutalism, they'd look at you and wonder what the heck you're Yeah, they, they would not have recognised that as, so as, this as a notion. The, the real heart of it is modernism and then the, the, the Soviet version of modernism, constructivism, that's the heart of it. And uh, modernism, you know, modernism has all these different uh, 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 um, uh, uh, um, pronouncements about what it means. It has certain things in common, clearly had a, a social purpose, a socialistic drive to it. You know, there were people who wanted to change the world for the better, harness uh, concrete and uh, readily available electric power to make lives better for people. And they'd be able to build higher and they'd be able to provide better services. And the health aspect as, as well. I mean, I was really, I mean, it's not by chance these kind of vast white walls. Um, we featured um, a really interesting book, um, the end of last year, which I'm crazy about, it's called Sunseekers, and it was all about, it's all about California and modernist architecture in California and why everybody heads to California, to, you know, to because of the good health vibes. Um, and a lot of it goes back to, um, is it no, TB, wasn't it? So, you know, TB was a massive problem. And so I think they figured out in 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, about um, was it a vaccine? I suppose for, for, for TB, uh, sounds very familiar territory, and people understood that it was maybe something about fresh air and maybe going up and out in Switzerland and sort of sitting and having a sort of a rest cure. But then they began to think, and it was a very modern idea, very modernist idea, that actually bathing in sun was actually important from where we are now, sunbathing. Mm. Um, and uh, there, there's a beautiful house in California called the Lovell Health, okay. Health House. Um, and that's um, Dr. Philip Lovell uh, instructed Richard Neutra, one of the great modernist architects, a very important guy, um, Jewish Viennese, who went to, to California and built this house for, for Philip Lovell, who also started life with a different, very different name. Um, and this house was meant to epitomize the best of modernism, which it did, and also about air circulation. So we're sitting here now with the white walls and the open spaces and the big windows. And uh, so that health, that healthy living aspect of modernism is also completely fascinating. I mean, neither of us have, have a background in architecture or engineering and um we 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 we've learned we learn 
there's much more we need to learn than we have learned but we approach it and th this concrete community that's uh, that we talk to we learn from um, are principally people who inhabit buildings look at them rather than people who design them we do have a number of architects and designers Definitely. who get involved with us but we always want to keep that voice of people who haven't we think insufficiently is that voice recognized um, by the powers that be that the people who have to live in in buildings uh, should We're be able to speak to them. <laughs> yeah. Well I love that and I love that also that you know like you said your, your concrete community and I love that as a this sort of idea of especially because you live in, in the city centre and it's quite difficult to have this idea of a community but like you were saying and social media gets a lot of stick but you can create these incredible places and it really is a really important learning tool like what you what you've done during lockdown as well as uh, Gabby when we spoke previously you were saying you were doing you know live walk arounds and you, suddenly there was thousands of people um just tuning uh, in from all over the world it's incredible I, I mean I don't want to be too prosaic about this but we've got no idea whether the people we talk to we engage with um who send us their comments and posts um are, are, are left wing or right wing or where they sit politically yeah um we think they they're like people and they care about people that's yeah. great and frankly the way the world has been and certainly during this lockdown i mean it's helped it's helped us tremendously to have that that contact and i believe that um you know people who write to us and send us photographs particularly during lockdown the, the, the view from my window project where they were sending photographs of whatever it was they could see out their window and it may be very very unremarkable but it's a connection it was it was either some incredible sort of lake in one of the great lakes of america or it was garden gnomes in bethnal green i mean it was like we said no we're just going to upload it's we're handing it to you this yeah. our live our live space so it's um yeah when we've all had such a tough time being confined within our walls and cut off from friends and family and recreation for us it's been it's been a tremendous way to to to, to engage um and um, uh, it, it has become has become a a, a passion um mm -hmm. I, I think our family are a bit fed up with us talking about buildings <laughs> Well, I think I have to sort of wrapping up. I think one of my, my best sort of questions I have to ask you is what is your favorite place in the Barbican then for people to, to come and see? Is there any sort of hidden gems or do you have a spot that you go to and you feel, oh gosh, I just love this? I mean, it's just about your one. <laughs> well, if you walk along London Wall from the Museum of um, London Roundabout, um about 100 meters along there's an entrance to a car park a spiral entrance you can walk down that little access road and at the bottom is the ruin of a tower one of the um one of the parts of the city wall and to your right are um the remains of buildings that were bombed in the war they've kept them and you can just go up onto the grass and you come out to a little lawn, um, which on the one side is a gate. You have to have a key for it. It'll take you into the Barbican. Ahead of you to your left is the girls' school. And in front of you is the lake. And um, 
uh, uh, that piece of ground has never been built on in the whole history of London. Now, must be the only piece of ground. <laughs> so we, we know this because one Sunday morning we came along there and walked back through there and there were there was a little group of pagans having a ceremony there because it was this ancient piece they of invited us to join them for the <laughs> we declined they're very nice i think they had wonderful cloaks on that's it yeah. On. Oh, yeah. but anyway so to me that's a, a magical secret place in the barbican and uh from there you can see you can see the the church and you can see that there's another tower another medieval uh, tower there which is in ruins i think it's a beautiful spot what about you again oh mine is actually yeah. very easy to, to to sort of find so podium level looking down onto the lake towards the waterfall onto the sort of sunken garden mm. it's just a yeah. beautifully shaped and designed sort mm. of piece of I guess what you call it landscaping I don't know what you call yeah. it but it's just lovely yeah, it's, it's so simple and it's easy to see and I have endless pleasure just with an iPhone walking past and taking a snap yeah yeah, yeah it's lovely so no it's incredible when, when, when lockdown is done and when when you can get back to London yeah so we'll <laughs> take you to these two little spots and give you a Oh, I would love that. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. Well, you've said it publicly now, so <laughs> I've got it recorded and everything. Um, no, I do. I just love the Barbican. And I would always say to people, like, because it get even now, it has this real sort of, people have a real love-hate relationship with the whole aesthetic of it. But I think what's so great about it is it's this snapshot of, you know, post-World War II mm. architecture. but very very thoughtful architecture and I think what's so great about London is really beautifully sort of old and new sit side by side and I think for something like the Barbican now it's not necessarily a new building but it, it still works within London's landscape and I think we would be a, a bit worse off without having it there I just think it's this incredible thing that continues to spark conversations and I think you know what you guys do is proof of that you know you have this community of 30 odd nearly forty thousand strong people who really embrace this whole idea of, of a concrete community and i think you know what would you say to people that perhaps they're not a fan of brutalist architecture but and they've never heard of the barbican what would you say to them if they were like oh, it's not really it's not really for me well, I, i'd say come visit because i have a suspicion that that sentiment often comes from people who've seen a photograph but actually haven't visited and haven't seen the whole that you've just spoken about yes yeah, yeah just come and sit on the terrace with a cup of tea yeah. or a beer yeah and in enjoy the, in the public area yeah. just yeah. take it in a walk through beach street gardens yeah which is just lovely beautiful yeah um we're more people who can come to barbican the better well that's it and it's such a special place but i think like what you said earlier you know there's as more and more people are sort of you know gaining interest in it and you have these incredible sort of theater productions and art exhibitions it can only help 
you know, entice people to, to, to come and explore and you will get lost. That's the thing. And I think that's part of the fun of it as well. When, when you're in the barbecue, I always sit, you know, I sometimes feel like maybe I should bring some chalk just to like mark <laughs> where I've been. Well, I think, <laughs> Who knows? You know, you know, there's this whole culture mile thing, which is a kind of a, something being driven by the Corporation of London. I actually think it's a really great idea and it's not in of itself, unlike New York's museum mile idea, is sort of space which is given over to culture so the, as you know the museum of london which is sort of attached to the side of the barbican estate is moving into smithfield market there's a lot of different things happening so um it would um i, th I think that that really speaks to the, the future good health of the barbican estate and people's understanding of it yeah well that's it Thank you both so, so much for talking to me about um, your experience of living in this, you know, architectural gem and experiment and your love of the Barbican. Um, um, but very quickly, where can people find you and what you do? So on Instagram, the easiest way is at Barbican underscore city. It's underscores in between each word, Barbican City of London. Um, and on our website, grayscape.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honour to speak to you both and so great to get an, an insider's view on this incredible piece of architecture. Thank you to speak. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. <laughs> And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. And not just any episode, the penultimate episode of season one. Firstly, I would like to thank Gabrielle Howard for coming on and giving us such a brilliant inside scoop to living in the Barbican and also just giving us a really great history and yeah, just a real behind the curtain look at what it's like to live in somewhere so historically important as the Barbican. If you've enjoyed listening to Gabby and Howard, please make sure that you check out what they're up to over on Grayscape. I will leave links to their website and their Instagram in the show notes below. As always, if you would like to get in touch to discuss anything that you've heard today, please feel free to do so. You can find me at Joe's Art History on Instagram. My DMs are always open. Or you can contact me via email, joesarthistory at gmail.com. And as always, all images that we discuss throughout the podcast can be found on my Instagram in my highlight reel. So this is episode 34. So if you go to my Instagram at Joe's Art History and find number 34 in the podcast and just click it, it will show you some of the images that we're talking about. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like, rate and subscribe as it not only means you'll never miss an episode, but it also helps other people find the podcast, which is always really helpful. And if you're able to, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review. And if you're watching on YouTube, it would be great if you can just hit the like and subscribe button as well. It would be really helpful. Finally, I've been Joe McLaughlin, your friendly host and resident art historian. And I look forward to welcoming you to the final episode of season one of the Joe's Art History podcast next week. Until then, keep learning. And remember, art is for all. Bye.